Hi, welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. It is Tuesday, February 28th, and I'm Jessica Steinberg. I'm joined today by environmental correspondent Sue Sirks and legal affairs and settlement reporter Jeremy Sharon. Hello, good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning, Jessica. We are in the midst of very tense days following the terrorist killing of brothers Halel and Yagel Yaniv and the deadly riot started by Jewish settlers in the Palestinian town of Huara. There was also another terrorist attack yesterday on Route 90 near Jericho, which took the life of Israeli-American Ilan Ganelis, an IDF veteran. We will talk about the subsequent actions that have been taking place, the evacuation of the Eviatar settlement outpost on Monday, and the first signs of perhaps some compromises on the highly controversial judicial reform. We will also talk about a rehabilitation of the Jordan River and a company that uses compost. Before we get into all of that, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachuk Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek team at www.sarachuklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. Okay, Jeremy, let's get started with you. As settlers and soldiers continue to clash in certain locations, and as other Israelis donated a million shekels to Huara yesterday, security forces began evacuating the Eviatar settlement outpost on Monday morning. Hundreds of settlers, as you had reported, spent the night at this West Bank hilltop, vowing to resettle the site in response to the killing of the two brothers uh, the day before. What can you tell us about that? What's playing out now? What are we seeing and hearing? So these settler activists went up to the uh, Eviatar site on Sunday night following the murder of the Yaniv brothers in that terrorist attack in Khawara. And they they took took up residence in Eviatar again and essentially trying to resettle the outpost there, which, uh, which was evacuated in in uh, July 2021. Now, what happened was that this organization, a kind of a quite radical settlement organization called Nahala, went up to the site where Eviatar is in uh, May 2021 and established this new settlement there. And that was just as the Bennett and Lapid government was being formed. And the IDF did not at that stage evacuate the nascent settlement as it was then and knock down the buildings. And because of the political instability, they were able to create a deal with the new incoming government, which was led by Naftali Bennett, who is himself a right-wing uh, advocate for the Israeli settlement enterprise. And they they created this deal whereby 
they would leave peaceably Eviatar. The buildings that were established at the site, there's quite a lot of them, makeshift buildings, you know, homes and, and, and other aspects of infrastructure would not be knocked down. And the deal was that there would be a review of the land there. And if it was found to be state land and not private Palestinian land, then the, the, the agreement was that outposts could be legalized and at some stage the settlers return. That process was carrying on during the term, term of the previous government and it was it didn't come to a conclusion. And now after after the, the terror attack on Sunday night at Khawara, which is very close by to Eviatar, these settler activists returned to Eviatar as what they said is is a fitting, you know, Jewish response to the terrorist attack uh, in order to create more, you know, Jewish settlement throughout the land of Israel. And they took up residence again. And there's been several attempts by the border police to evacuate them, but but none none of that has been successful as of yet. There are still several dozen activists in the settlement right now, and about according to to what I understand, about a, as of this morning, about a hundred activists below the outpost. What do you think will be the next steps of this? Obviously, we're all this is also taking place with the new government where there are many members of the coalition who feel very strongly that outposts like this should be settled and should be a fact on the ground. So the several senior politicians, including uh, Itamar Bengvir, the national security minister and an ultra-nationalist supporter of settlements, he was there yesterday. He wrote a letter to Prime Minister ben- Benjamin Netanyahu saying the settled activists who resettled the site should be left there, should be allowed to stay there. And the settlement legalized, and uh, Miri Regev, uh, the transport minister, who is from Netanyahu's own Likud party, she visited there this morning. She didn't exactly call on Netanyahu to legalize it, but she said this is, place is, is fitting for, for settlement and praised the settlers. It is part of the uh, coalition agreements that Eviatar be legalized. And it appears that the politicians and, and the government are waiting for the right time in order to declare the land where Eviatar is, state land, and thereby begin the process to legalize the site. It should be noted that the Palestinian villages, residents of nearby Palestinian villages say that historically this land belonged to them and they used it for grazing and other, other purposes. And but the, for many years, they've been unable to access the land due to IDF security restrictions. I think the idea is that the land will be declared as state land and allow the Eviatar to be legalized. Now, Obviously, this would create complications with Israel's relationship with the US and agreements, apparent agreements reached recently saying that Israel would halt further settlement development. So whether or not they declare Eviatar to be on state land now or, or in a few months, I think it's likely that it will be delayed in order to, to prevent any further friction with, with the US. But uh, I think this government does seem intent on, on legalizing that site. Okay, thanks for that, Jeremy. Okay, Sue, tell us about what is happening at the Jordan River and what kind of rehabilitation is taking place there and why now? This is an 11-kilometer or 7-mile stretch that's been undergoing rehabilitation for 11 years now, bit by bit, to make it attractive to visitors and clean the water sufficiently to make it safe to go swimming in. Now, the swimming bit still has to wait, and I'll explain why. We're talking about a stretch that runs to the immediate south of the lake, where both banks are within Israel. Further south, the river actually defines the border with Jordan and even further on goes into the West Bank and eventually drains into the Dead Sea. We're talking about the bit that's within Israel. Now, there are a number of things to understand. Firstly, for decades, 
This part of the river has been a dumping ground for sewage and for salty water from saltwater springs that nobody wanted going into the freshwater sea of Galilee because that's our emergency drinking source. Today, that saltwater is still draining into the river along with treated sewage, that's a bit better, because they built a treatment plant nearby. The plan, not yet executed, is to divert those waters away from the river to agriculture. Now, secondly, this part of the river was refashioned in the early years of last century to meet the needs of a hydroelectric power station just downstream, which functioned until 1948. The river was narrowed to help increase the flow of the water. It was turned into a kind of canal. The main works that have been going on since 2012 have been massive earthworks to restore the original look of the river and make, make it accessible to visitors. So it's more windy now and it has little inlets and bays and there are little bridges to islands and where there were steep banks before, there's moderately sloping access to the water's edge and there's seating and they're putting in picnic areas and planting trees. The third part of the puzzle and the one that will put, be put in place last is to release more water from the Sea of Galilee into the river. South of the lake, the river only receives a tiny fraction of the water it once did because most of it's been diverted by Syria, Jordan and Israel for drinking water and agriculture and so forth. In recent years, you'll remember we've had terrible droughts and those have been compounded by climate change, which has affected the level of the Sea of Galilee and we have to supply water from there to, to the Jordanians. But happily, technology is providing us with an answer because Israel is becoming the first country in the world to use desalinated water to keep a lake's level high. And that's starting now on an experimental scale. All the infrastructure is in place already. So bringing all the pieces together, by the time the polluted water is diverted away, we should be ready to open the taps from the Sea of Galilee to provide more clean water. And then we'll be able to swim there. And as a as a postscript, though, I should just say that none of this will benefit the other two sections of the river, which are still very polluted by raw sewage because the people living along the banks use cesspits. They don't have access in the main to, to sewage plants. But there is an MOU with Jordan to rehabilitate the section it shares with Israel. So we have to watch that space, too. OK, interesting. Thanks for that, Sue. We're going to take a quick break. When we're back, Jeremy will tell us about some possible signs of movement on the judicial reform controversy. The world we live in isn't perfect, but it doesn't get better on its own. That's where the work of activists comes in. Whether it's environmental justice, animal rights, or disability advocacy, there are people all around the world striving to make it a better place. That's where All About Change comes in. Host Jay Ruderman talks with activists about how they do what they do and what inspires them to keep going. Because activism is all about change. Listen to All About Change wherever you get your podcasts. Jeremy, you've got a piece high on the site right now that is looking at the first signs of perhaps some compromises on the judicial reform. What are those signs and how significant are they really? So yesterday in the Constitution Law and Justice Committee, where the all this judicial overhaul legislation is being discussed, there was another there was another debate. But this time on an alternative alternative proposal made by the chairman of the committee, Simha Rothman, who is one of the key architects of the judicial overhaul legislation. And he, he brought a proposal uh, for a different type of judicial review than has been discussed previously. Now, the, that, that, what has been discussed until now is essentially severely restricting the formal and, and kind of strong form of judicial review that 
the Israel's high court has exercised until now, which basically means if the high court said thought that a piece of legislation contravened Israel's basic laws, it, it could strike it down. Simcha Rothman's original legislation says basically it applies very, very severe rest- restrictions on the high court um, for exercising that kind of judicial review to the extent that it basically became impossible. So, and there's obviously there's been widespread criticism from jurists and legal scholars across the ideological spectrum saying this is too restrictive and essentially eliminates judicial review in Israel. So Rothman brought an alternative version of judicial review to the to the committee yesterday in a different in a different piece of legislation, saying trying to saying that maybe we could adopt the British model. In in, in Britain, the uh, the courts there are able to declare uh, um, to make a declaration of incompatibility. So if a piece of legislation contravenes constitutional law in in the UK, then the courts can say. This is, this is incompatible with constitutional law. It doesn't invalidate the law like the Israeli High Court rulings does, but the government is is strongly urged to amend that legislation. So, and in many cases, that's what happens. So, Rothman was saying, let's adopt that kind of soft form of judicial review. So, so uh, MK uh, Labour MK Gilad Kariv, who is one of the most prominent members of the opposition on the Constitution Committee. He said, like, Rothman's proposal, he said it's unacceptable as it is because it doesn't involve the various tools available within that, that framework which the British um, uh, Declaration of Incompatibility has. But, interestingly, he began a conversation with Rothman saying, if you integrated the two systems, having a restrictive, h- hard judicial review together with a less restrictive form of uh, declarations of incompatibility, soft judicial review, then maybe that might be something which is acceptable. And Rothman actually... It, this is the first time there was I, I've seen since following the the, the committee hearings since the begin, since they started in January. This is the first time there was some kind of constructive, uh, reasonable dialogue about about a solution. And and, and Rothman took Kariv's suggestions seriously and started th- started talking about how those details might work out. And he also said that he could consider Kariv's uh, suggestion that in order to have that kind of soft judicial review, you would have to adopt some of those um, tools which are available to the British Parliament uh, uh, following a declaration of incompatibility by by the by the by the courts in the UK. They didn't agree on on they didn't agree on those specifics, but Rothman said that he would ask the committee legal advisor to draft led uh, a, a new draft new legislation with that kind of com- combined judicial review uh, mechanism as as a formal proposal. So I don't know how far this is going to go how if it really does have legs. Gilad Kariv said said you know, this isn't a, a kind of a, a joint proposal because I don't agree with the, the details which you're saying, the parameters which you're saying right now. But it was definitely the first time I've seen any kind of um, real constructive dialogue in that committee, which has basically become a forum for shouting. Um, so so maybe there is some kind of uh, way forward there uh, regarding regarding that very controversial uh, uh, legislation to, to limit judicial review in Israel. Thanks for that, Jeremy. Obviously, we'll keep on following your reporting on that and see what happens with it. Okay, Sue, now I know that you have been covering a company that uses compost to make a variety of products. Of course, I feel a great deal of personal guilt that I do not personally compost these days. But tell me about it. Tell us what we can do to help this process along and what are the products that they're actually making with compost? 
Well, sadly, there's not much that we can do other than compost because the company is based overseas uh, where the markets are bigger. It's not, not in Israel. Although we can order the pots already, but I don't know what the shipping costs are. It sounds like a no-brainer, really, to press compost into the shape of a plant pot that can go into the ground. Um, and it's apparently been tried before. But according to the company, which is called Bioplasma, this is the first time that, that a way has been found to keep a plant pot made of compost strong and intact when it has to be strong, which is during the period it's being grown in the nursery and watered all the time, but that can break down quickly once it's in the soil. And the way they've done that is they've just, they've created a kind of salad of of uh, tree resin and natural polymers from plant based plant based starches and sugars into the glues that are needed to keep the compost together. And they can actually play with the with the measurements to control the rate at which the pot will start to break down and decompose. Plant pots are just the start. They are in France at the moment. They've set up a partnership with Veolia, a French company which collects municipal compost in the Poitiers region. And the pots are made very close to the compost facility and then sold locally. So you've got what's called a circular economy. One person's waste is another person's resource. They're now going and setting up in, in Germany. So this is an Israeli company. And Zanir Eldar, who's the CEO, told me that the technology can be applied to a massive range of products, which are produced today in plastic and polystyrene. You think of the trays that we get our meat in or the plastic we get our veggies in and just dumped into the garbage. So, for example, they're already piloting compost-based single-use plates. There's a number of advantages. I'll just mention a couple. Uh, over plastic, obviously, they have a much smaller carbon footprint. But also, if you're a gardener as I am, often when you take a plant out of a plot pot, the roots are stuck. The roots have become stuck because it's been in the plant so far, and you have to wrench it out. The roots get broken, go into the ground. They spend the first uh, initial period wounded, fighting off viruses, whereas the ones in the compost pots have ready-made fertilizer and can immediately start growing so the growing rate is uh, faster you don't need the, the, the you don't need the work of taking them out of the pots and putting them into the soil a lot of advantages so how pricey a prospect is it to create biodegradable pots or trays from compost are these going to be affordable at the moment um, they are they're producing a box so that they can market 10 pots which are uh, 10 and a half centimeters diameter to sell them via the internet. And that will cost 14 euros 90 for the 10. But again, I don't know what the shipping cost is to bring them to Israel. But the aim is to get the pots down to 20 cents each. Ah, okay. That's much more affordable. Okay. Looking forward to seeing those on the shelves or available for purchase. Thank you very much, Sue, for being on today's Daily Briefing. It was good to have you here. Thank you. Good to be with you, Jessica. Uh, thanks to all our listeners. We'll be back tomorrow with another daily briefing. In the meantime, have yourselves a good day. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. Until next time. Shalom. Shalom.